If you would, take your Bibles, and I hope you have one, to John chapter 8 with me this morning. John chapter 8. If you're visiting or you haven't been to our church in a while, I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, and I've titled the entire series of the Gospel of John basically Conversations with Christ, Conversations with Christ, um, because basically the gospel is a series of conversations of Jesus with individuals, men and women, or with groups of people, crowds of people. And basically that's what you have for all 21 chapters of the gospel is a series of conversations. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 8 and verses 21 to 29, and I've titled the sermon somewhat maybe uh, controversially or maybe awkwardly, confronting unbelief that Jesus no one talks about. And I'll explain that hopefully by the passage itself. So let's go to John chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 21 down to the end of 29. And this is the word of God. Where John the apostle tells us that Jesus with this crowd in the treasury, you'll notice back at verse 1, so he's there in the temple and this is what he continues to say. So Jesus, he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, look, you are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. And I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so they said to them, said to Him, sorry, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. And I have much to say about you and much to judge, but He who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then John tells us in verse 27, they did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And may God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. And just for a few minutes, I want to draw your attention to this. There's a couple of things, though, that I, I want us to think about before we unpack the passage, especially with a title that I have somewhat provocatively picked being the Jesus no one talks about. First, let me ask you to consider this. Have you been ever shocked by the candid honesty of someone you've been talking to, like where they were just way more honest than you were expecting when you started that conversation with them. I I know some of our young people here, some of the young guys and gals play hockey or are in different types of sports, and I know that many of you, we've just come through Christmas, and there is a rite of passage for Canadians at Christmas time, especially starting Boxing Day when the junior hockey uh, leagues of the world start to play, and we have the big tournament. And if you remember a year ago, for those of you that are a bit hockey buffs, 
There was a, a classic candid set of honesty when the coach of the team from Denmark was asked prior to his team playing Canada if he felt that his team had a hope of winning, of which he looked square into the camera and said, not a hope. Not a hope. And he was called on it and said, well, how are you motivating your, your, your hockey team? And he said, I'm not trying to motivate them. We're going to lose. He was very candid. It was, it was shocking. It was, it was not at all the norm. You know what it's like if you watch sports and they stick microphones in front of coaches or players. There's the stand. Well, it was a team effort. And, you know, there's always hope if we all band together as a team. There's a classic set of answers you're supposed to ask or, or supposed to say. And we were shocked when this happened. And I want you to remember how we get shocked by the candid honesty of others in our time. We tend to think we've got to play nice, to answer all the questions politically correct, or we don't want to offend anybody. Yet, when someone is being truthfully honest while shocking, it's something we can't always seem to look away from. It's like you don't like it, but everybody stares at it. You kind of can't get enough of it. And so much, so much the more in 2019, because when folks are candidly honest today, whether it's politics or religion, whether it's sports or entertainment, if someone dares give you a blunt and honest answer, then step back and get ready for the show because social media is going to go crazy. Twitter trends and viral Facebook videos of response, and then there'll be op-eds in the newspapers and pundits and talk shows will do entire programs dedicated to that one shockingly honest answer. And you know this to be true. Secondly, you're going to see this in Acts chapter 8, 21 to 29, because Jesus has already just said, as I've read you, some shockingly candid, honest things. And to be honest, the crowd that has already been drawn around Jesus doesn't like what he had to say. In fact, by the time you get to the end of John chapter 8, Jesus is going to say the most shocking thing, and the reaction of the world will be in the most shocking way. But I also want you to think as we come to a passage like John 8, 21 to 29, about the Bible and about things that we mostly enjoy. And let me see if I can hit some of the places where maybe some of you are. Like, for instance, if I asked you, do you love to go to Disneyland? Many of you here would say, man, I love to go to Disneyland, but I'm not going to ride the roller coasters. Or I, don't, I can't stand the long lines. Many of you here might say, I love to go to the mall, but I hate finding a parking space or walking into the mall, especially if the weather isn't good. Some of you might say, I love my doctor and I'm thankful for the doctor, but I hate or I even avoid needles. Maybe I get a little bit more close to home. Some of you might say, I love my spouse, but I hate it when they snore. Or they hog the bed and take the covers or or, or you fill in the blank. You see, again, whether it's cars or food, restaurants, family, jobs, parents, even our kids, we are all guilty of loving something, but sometimes not all of something. And I'd submit that we can be guilty of doing this with our Bibles. You've heard me talk about how Jesus is defined and presented in the Word of God. I've talked about what I lovingly like to call country music Jesus. 
You know, everybody does that. If you come to Jesus, then you get your dog back and your wife back and your truck back and all that kind of stuff. A lot of people love to present that version of Jesus. Some people love soft and cuddly Jesus. Other people talk about the miracle Jesus. And of course, we've just celebrated, and who doesn't love to talk about the baby Jesus? But as a church, as a people, how often do we read about, think about, or contemplate creator, Lord of the universe, Jesus? And sometimes I think we get confused today in the 21st century about Messiah Jesus or Savior Jesus, and most of all, Judge Jesus. That is the Jesus nobody talks about. That's awkward. That's shockingly candid. That can take us off guard. And you think about your Bible. What parts of the Bible do you tend to read and why? Now, be honest. Do a little self-inventory. Now, of course, I know we all love the Psalms. If you noticed, every passage of Scripture we read throughout the service was taken from the Psalms. And in fact, many people enjoy the book of John, the Gospel of John. And if you're a new Christian, if you're a struggling Christian and you talk to me, likely the first place I'll tell you to go is read the Gospel of John. But what about those portions of the Bible that make us uncomfortable? I mean, like, when a guy like Steve Dobb preaches through the book of Hosea, and there's awkwardnesses in it. Or a few weeks ago, when our brother Russ preached on a passage of Lamentations, which blessed us and edified us, but when was the last time you actually read the entire book of Lamentations? Because let me just say, as I doubt myself since it's my birthday, let me tell you young people one of my expressions, Lamentations is a gnarly book, all right? Gnarly was a cool word when I was your age, not cool now, but this one son that would mock me is not here, so I'm going to use it, all right? But, but Lamentations is gnarly. I mean, it is not a fun book to read. Whether it's Genesis all the way to Malachi, we all sometimes cherry-pick our Bible. You see, people say, well, Pastor Steve, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, really? Well, parts of it. Everybody kind of loves the Beatitudes part. They love the Lord's Prayer part. Of course, the whole world loves the John 7, 1 part, which is judge not lest you be judged. Everybody can quote that one. But what about these verses at the end of his sermon, the way he concludes it? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That passage is very dear to me because it is a passage that Jesus used to save my soul. Because most of my life, I would read that and think about somebody else. Until one day, God's Holy Spirit gripped me, and I read that, and I saw me. And then He saved me. But what if all of the Bible, all of it, even the shocking parts, are meant to help us and shape us and change us and ultimately transform us? And what if God gave us his entire word to read it and meditate on it and learn from it? And I know this 
Because John writes his gospel and its entirety, even with chapters like John 8 and verses like I just read, and these verses were meant to bring you to that place that I have read to you every time I preach from John because his purpose in writing the gospel is actually found at the end of the gospel, right? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Verses like John 8, 21 to 29 are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and here's the result of that. By believing, you may have life in his name. And so Calvary and friends and visitors, I want to take a few minutes this morning just to walk through verses 21 to 29, and I want us with its shocking statements, with Christ's candid honesty, Statements that will no doubt evoke emotions, awkward even for us. But we're going to be taught the true definition and example of what it means to speak the truth and yet be loving. So let's look at our passage, all right? Number one, if you want to take notes, and I believe there's a room for you to take notes on the back of your bulletin, I want you to notice in verse 21, Jesus' confronting pronouncement. If you look back at John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus began in the temple by saying, I am the light of the world. He makes this, and then basically, for the rest of the chapter, the crowd argues with him about whether or not he is the light of the world. And so now in verse 21, he makes this confronting pronouncement. He says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Can you imagine if someone said that in this social media world? When was the last time you saw anybody get in front of a camera that's related to a church and say that who didn't seem and come across like just an angry old man? Let's be honest. You see, Jesus starts by reminding this crowd of something he had said repeatedly. You see, the part of this verse, verse 21, you will seek me but will not find me, this is not the first time Jesus has said this. Back in John chapter 7, verse 34, he said it. And But now the different and shocking part is that Jesus looks at them and says, you're going to die in your sin. You see, even the part where he says, you can't come where I'm going, Jesus has said that before in John 6 and 7. But for the first time in John's gospel, Jesus looks bluntly at this crowd and says, here's your reality. You want me to be honest? Do you want me to say what you've maybe been fishing for me to say? All right, I'll say it. You're going to die in your sin. And trust me when I tell you, church, that shocked and it offended. But is it any different today? Most of the folks you and I work with or live next to, you see, most of the people I know, most of the people I talk to in the coffee shops, my extended family, most of the people in my neighborhood, I had a lovely chat with my new neighbor that lives on, on the left side of our home the other day and got a little bit of his story, and he's from, from India, and we were talking about things, and he was asking me about me being a pastor and what I stood for and all that, and I have had very few human beings that have not said to me, oh, I'm not perfect. I, I've never really, I got to be honest, I, don't, I, think, I was thinking about this, I don't think I've ever met a human being who said, I'm perfect. Most of the people I interact with will say, no, no, I'm not perfect. I'm good, but I'm not perfect. And, and I can have religious conversations with all kinds of people and young people. You'll be able to do that as well at school and in your, and, and in your classrooms. And those of you that are in university, it's not hard to have a philosophical discussion about how good or bad is humanity. But try to tell people, no, no, we're going to die in our sin if we don't be right with Jesus. 
and you will find that will likely end the conversation in a hurry. Okay? Now, by the way, let me nuance this by saying you need to have a relationship with people for, before you just drop that bomb. All right? Don't, don't get all cold turkey out there with that. All right? Let me explain it as we go along. But basically, he says, you're going to die in your sin. Now, have you ever thought about the contrast of John 8, 21 with John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3, which we read at almost every funeral? Remember when Jesus looked at his disciples in John 14 and said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Do you see the difference between that language and John 8, 21? How, how shockingly blunt it is when Jesus says, you're going to die in your sin. You can't come where I'm going. You don't know where I'm going. To those who actually believe in him, and Jesus goes out of his way to comfort them and assure them and give them peace. You see, Jesus says, you're going to die in your sin. Now, you need to realize what that word, have you noticed that it's the word sin? It's singular. It's not plural. And basically what Jesus is telling them there and us today is, if you reject me, if you refuse to believe in me in a way that alters your life, then you're going to die in this state of sin or this reason of sin, which basically is you rejected Jesus. And that great Anglican minister of a few years ago, J.C. Ryle, explains it so, so well. And again, you'll notice how uneasy statements like this make us when he says, no proof of the fullness of sin after all is so overwhelming and unanswerable as the cross and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole doctrine of his substitution and atonement. Terribly black must that guilt be for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ryle finishes his thought with this, nothing, I am convinced, will astonish us so much when we awake on the resurrection day as the view we will have of sin and the retrospect we will take of our own countless shortcomings and defects, never until the hour when Christ comes the second time will we fully realize the sinfulness of sin. Isn't it eerily quiet in here when we talk like this? This shocks us. Jesus shocks his audience with their need and the reality, he's basically saying, hey, you've been following me around now for the better part of two and a bit years. You've questioned me. You've taken me to task on everything I've done. You've benefited from my miracles, eat when I have fed the thousands. You've watched the lives change of those that I've healed. Yet you won't admit that you need me or ultimately embrace who I am. And he basically says, that's going to be your downfall. And the tragedy will be that you will eventually call out for me, but it will be too late. Friends, if you read the Bible, especially the Gospels, you'll notice that two things happen whenever you reject Jesus. Either you move away from Jesus or Jesus moves away from you. Those are your only two options. 
It's played out in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you ever thought about just the city of Nazareth? Have you ever realized or thought through why you know about the city of Nazareth in your Bible? What's famous about Nazareth? Two things. One, it's the hometown of Jesus. Two, nobody believes in him. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the only two things you ever find out about the town of Nazareth. And that, my friends, is what Jesus preached about in John chapter 7. That's what he meant in those words. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. It's what Solomon wrote about in Proverbs chapter 2 when he talks about wisdom. And if you don't listen to wisdom and then folly comes and then you're going to cry out and wisdom's not going to be there. And God has given us plenty of examples. And this one makes me, makes me laugh a little bit because some of you know that one of my favorite Christian comedians, a guy named Tim Hawkins, I love me and my boys and my daughter. We love to, to watch uh, Tim Hawkins, and he makes a lot of humor out of church as we know it. And Tim Hawkins points out that it's a hilarious thing because we put it almost in every kid, kid's uh, newborn child's nursery or children's nursery is Noah and the Ark. But have you ever really thought about what happens at Noah and the Ark? And we surround our kids with it. Only eight people make it. Like the whole world gets destroyed. Have you ever thought about that? That's a bit amusing. You're allowed to laugh. It is a bit amusing. You see, do you ever tell your kids the whole story of Noah and the ark? Do you ever read the whole thing? How many of those people there, remember they watched and mocked Noah for over a hundred years, but how many of them yelled out for rescue when the rains and the floods came? You see, then in verse 22 and 23, notice you'll see unbelief's blind self-righteousness. Watch how the religious folks in the crowd respond. Look at what it says. Will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? Now, don't at all think this is concern. They faked concern. All the while, they're mocking and condescending. This was done earlier in the narrative, way back again in John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, where they thought Jesus there would run away and hide, but now it's worse. They think he's going to take his own life. They're actually looking at each other and feeling good about themselves as they mock him. They held this, and by the way, in the Jewish day, but this idea of taking your own life, they held it in great contempt and were extremely self-righteousness about this. And so basically they're saying, of course we can't go with Jesus because Jesus must be going to hell. So of course we're not going with him. And this is what Jesus talked about back in John 8, 12. Remember when he said, I am the light of the world, but he said, those who walk with me will see light, but those who don't walk in a great darkness. And friends, I need you to see this morning in this awkward, shocking passage, this crowd would not admit their need or acknowledge who Jesus really was. And so they proved that they were blind to the realities of life. And the only way to compensate for your guilt and shame was to make fun or to to take a stance of superiority. And can I ask you, does that not sound familiar in today's culture? If I don't agree with you, if I don't like what you said, then I'll simply take a position of superiority or I'll mock your position. And of course, the irony here is, can you believe it? They thought he was going to take his own life. And when we get to the end of John, when we read about the crucifixion, what does it tell us? And it says that Jesus gave up his own life. They meant to mock him, and yet Jesus would do exactly that. Lay down his life for us. But notice as we keep going in verse 24 and 25, unbelief's worldly allegiance. If you'll notice, Jesus doesn't respond to their question. Will he kill himself? He just simply looks at them and says, no, listen, you are from below and I am from above. 
And so Jesus points out what should be obvious to the crowd. And as readers, as you and I look at it, and this is what I love it, it seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? Jesus is looking at them and saying, look, I'm God. I came down to earth to save you. Or more importantly, we are from two different worlds. We're from two different places. You are the ones that are created and in need of saving, but tragically, you don't even realize how bad it is. And why? Because basically, Jesus says, you're in love with the very world and its systems that are going to destroy you. And if you're a parent, have you not felt this? Have you not at some point in your life looked at your children, and children, hear me, those of you that are here, mom and dad, it's my birthday today, and young people, you've heard me say it, right? The older I get, the smarter my dad gets. And, and I was telling some people, some folks had us over to celebrate my birthday last night, and it was a lot of fun, and I was telling about a phone call that I was going to get this morning from my mom, because ever since I've been about six or seven years old, my mom has rehearsed a little story for me, and uh, by the way, 8.01 this morning, mom called, uh, for those of you who want and hello, happy birthday, and do you know how many hours I was in labor with you? That's the first things out of her mouth every year for about 40 years now. I get reminded of the pain I caused my mom. And then we laugh and we have a good time and and all those types of things. But moms and dads, have you not said things to your kids and you watch them and you go and you know they're going to hurt themselves? And they look at you like you don't know what you're talking about. And it's like you, you almost think we're from two different worlds. And I can see your faces. Those of you there to smile and let your emotions show on your face. And some of you moms and dads are looking at each other right now going, Jonathan's man, he knows my kids. No, I got three of them of my own. And now I've got grandkids. And the one thing, we have a propane fireplace. And literally to keep Theo away from it, we got to put a coffee table in front of it. And then we got to put a pool noodle over the edge of the, of the coffee table. And the boy still tries to get near to that fireplace because he doesn't get it. He just sometimes is like he's from another world. He's not listening. And that's what he says. And and don't you realize as parents sometimes and young people realize this, sometimes you're going to look at something and taste it and you're going to be convinced if I could just have this, it will make me happy. If I could just do this, it will fulfill me and all that. Whether you're young here or you're old here, that is what sin does. It robs you of the very peace you're looking for. It robs you of the belonging you're looking for and even sense you need. But that's why Paul says what he does in Ephesians. Jesus says, I am from above, you're from below. Paul takes it further in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the year and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the sad reality. It's the tragic, shocking, in-your-face reality. But that's why John 8, 12, leading into this, where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'll take you out of that darkness, but if you reject him, then you're in darkness. Have you ever wondered why we have that beautiful, beautiful hymn, the light of the world is Jesus? Don't walk in darkness. What a tragedy. But I don't want you to miss in verses 24, 25, and 26, there's a message of hope there. 
You see, Jesus sandwiches a glorious truth between two shockingly declarative statements. Because notice that he says in, in, in our next verse, you will die in your sins. Now, now notice something here. In verse 21, it was you'll die in your sin. But the second time he says it in 23, 24, it's now sins, plural. So what did, what did Jesus make a mistake? Did he correct himself? I want you to realize Jesus is showing them and us, okay, we are born in sin And so we commit sins because we're sinners. In other words, it's because you reject Jesus that leads us to commit sins that go against God's ways. Because we're looking for something in all the wrong places, and thus we do the wrong things. But in the midst of that, look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so church, listen, every one of you here this morning, what you think and believe of Jesus Christ is of paramount importance. That's not a cliche. Every one of you has to deal with that statement. It's the equivalent of Jesus saying, unless you believe that I am God, I am the one whom God sent to be the agent between life and death for you. If you want to escape death or separation from God for eternity, look to me, believe in me, trust in me, obey me. And so young people, young people, listen, who is Jesus to you in your youth? How would you answer that question of who is Jesus to you? Would you have that Sunday school head answer? Well, I'll I'll tell you he was born in Nazareth. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Do you you almost feel like you go to school and you just give a bunch of facts? Or who is Jesus to you personally on a makes a difference in how you see the world and live life, even no matter how young you are? Hey, moms and dads, do your kids see who Jesus is to you? Grandparents, do you see... Do your grandchildren see how important Jesus is to you? Hey, Calvary Baptist, who is Jesus to us? You see, you can't just believe that Jesus is a good teacher. Lots of people do. My neighbor, who's a Hindu, believes that Jesus was a good teacher. In fact, he ranks them. He ranks Jesus right there with um, uh, the guy from India. Help me. Huh? Gandhi. Yes, exactly. Basically, my neighbor told me Gandhi and Jesus about the same. Good teacher right? But my greatest fear as a pastor, my greatest fear as a father, my greatest fear as friends is that we would be this close to Jesus and not know him as Savior and Lord. Kent Hughes illustrates this so well. I couldn't believe this when I read this because there is a biblical example of this in the Old Testament in Hezekiah, but Kent Hughes tells us about this guy. I don't know how many of you know this name when I say it. Dr. Gordon A. Alves, A-L-L-E-S, He was actually the chemist and the man who pioneered the development of insulin for the treatment of diabetes. If you do that study, he's the guy. And I don't know if you realize this, but Dr. Gordon died of diabetes. And his friends who were closest to him came to one of two conclusions about why he died. Because he died prematurely. Either he did not know he had the disease or he purposely neglected to use the remedy. Now, can you see the irony of that? To have invented and found out about insulin and how to create it synthetically, how to inject it into the body and how to help people only for you not to make avail of it and then to die of the very disease you tried most of your life to save others from? And I don't know what the truth of the matter is, Hugh says, 
But if Al's knew his condition, the situation was even more attractive. And in the same way, a person can know that Christ is the I am. He can give all his mind to that. But unless there comes a belief that involves receiving the cure, Jesus says you're going to die in your sins. And the Jews lack that unbelief. And then if you look at verses 25 and 27, you see unbelief's arrogant ignorance. Notice what they say. Who are you? Who are you? It's a demanding question, isn't it? They're demanding, who are you? In other words, who do you think you are to say this to us? And Jesus looks at the crowd and once again says, I am. Look, when I speak, God speaks. When I act, God acts. And they rejected him and God. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so in John 8, 26, Jesus says what he does. He tells the crowd, I'm sorry this offends you, and I'm really sorry, but I cannot stop telling you this, for I have much to say and to judge. That's why Richard Phillips challenges us with these words. Jesus was not daunted because he knew where his message came from. It came from God himself. And Christians here, listen, that's why we got to know our Bibles, and we got to know that the Bible is the very word of God. Daniel prayed about it in his pastoral prayer. When the world says, we're tired of your preaching and we want you to stop, we've got to reply, I can't stop preaching because it's God's word that I preach and God has commissioned me to speak what I have heard from him in the Bible. And then look at 27 because now John steps back and John tells us as the readers that we're supposed to know something. This is no longer the event. John the apostle says, oh, by the way, reader, they did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. And that's why I titled this, this particular point, Arrogant Ignorance. Because they act like they know all this stuff. They act like they, they have more knowledge than Jesus do. And then Jesus tells us, uh, folks, in case you haven't seen it, they've got no idea what Jesus is talking about. They're more confused and afraid because they don't believe in who he is and what he claims. You've heard me talk about this, and again, I think it's fitting on my birthday. My grandfather used to say to me, and he passed it to his dad, and then my dad used to say it to me, and my kids, Brandon, Jordan, and Abby, have all heard me say it to them, which is there are none so blind as those who don't want to see. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever met someone like that? But have you ever been that person? And then my dad, I'd get into arguments with my dad, especially when I was a young person and going through my teen years, and dad and I would have differences, opinions about stuff, and he would look right at me and he'd say, Steve, your attitude right now is don't confuse me with the facts because you've already made up your mind. And that's the crowd. They didn't want to deal with the facts. They've already made up their mind. And so young people, how about, have you ever done that with mom and dad in your life, what I did as a teenager with my dad? Have you ever done that with a teacher or a coach? And for those of you that are university students, have you ever fought the urge to say out loud when you've often been sitting in class and said, I know better than this teacher or prof knows? Husbands or wife, have you been guilty of simply narrowing your mind to your position to get your desired outcome? How about any of us in here? Have we simply been stubborn in our position because we don't like what someone else said to us or pointed out to us? See, have you ever really noticed that the Bible actually is full of two types of testimony? Have you ever caught this? And one of these testimonies is a little bit more popular for us in our pop culture of church today. Because one type of testimony is the person who was hurting and helpless 
that person who's at rock bottom and searching and afraid. They're wounded and they're wondering. And, and, and we find the, the great biblical example of that testimony, right, with the prodigal son. We love the prodigal son. How he took his inheritance and he went and he spent it and he partied and he ended up in a pig pen eating the slop from the pigs. And then it says he came to himself and he ran to his father and his father ran to him and he took off his robe and his ring and he kissed him and they killed a fatted lamb and all of that. But have you ever noticed there's another type of testimony in the Bible as well? And that's the testimony of the stubborn person stuck on his or her ways that counter confrontational testimony. And you have a great biblical example of that. Have you ever heard how the apostle Paul, who was Saul, came to Christ? This guy thought he was perfect. If you had gone to Paul, if you really read Philippians chapter 3, he was one of the few people, if you looked at him, said, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. I deserve to go to heaven. I'm a Jew of the Jews. He said this over and over again. But just as I started this sermon with the idea that there are two responses to Jesus, rejection or acceptance. But that leads to two different ways of life. I have a book in my, my library that I read, I'm going to say every week. The title of that book is The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. It's a fascinating read. I can never put it down for a very long time. I always end up having to go back to it. And it's a collection of deathbed accounts of various people throughout history. One of those people is a guy, an American philosopher by the name of Thomas Paine. He was considered one of the great intellectuals of the founding of the United States. And he wrote a book called The Age of Reason. He was an avid atheist. He denied God. And yet, his deathbed statement is very, very well known and been published all over the place. Here's what he said before he died. I would give worlds if I had them, that the age of reason had not been published. Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me for God's sake. Even Send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. That's the shocking reality of rejecting Jesus. And yet, many of you might have heard this name, Isaac Watts. He was considered the father of the modern hymns that we did. Our God, our help in ages past is one of his great hymns. And on the very day that he passed away, here's what he wrote. It is a great mercy that I have no manner of fear or dread of death. I could, if God please, lay my head back and die without terror this afternoon. And with that, he went into the presence of God. And as I conclude this morning, look at verses 28 and 29 where you see Jesus' glorious offer of hope. Jesus offers a glorious offer in verses 28 and 29. Notice what he says. After all of this shocking reality, he looks at them and he says, listen, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Then you will know this. What will they know? You'll know that I loved you. I came for you. I'm here from you. And remember, I read those first haunting words in Ephesians chapter 2. But now let me finish that passage in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is truth and love. 
That's what John 8, 21 to 29 is. In fact, I would challenge you, find me another book written in all of human history that gives us the truth and love combined so well as the Bible. You can't see it. You see, listen to me. You can't sin so much that God won't forgive you, and you'll never be good enough that you don't need forgiving. Jesus says, listen, you're going to lift me up one day, and then you'll know what Charles Spurgeon said. Let not your sense of sin make you think little of my master. You are a great sinner, but he is a greater Savior. Do not say that you have matched Christ or outmatched him. Come, I love this Goliath sinner. The son of David can conquer thee and save thee yet. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be at wool. And Jesus said all these shocking words, words of truth. They are confrontational. They're meant to shock, but he ends by offering the most glorious promise humanity could ever get. I'm here for you. I love what Paul Tripp says. One of the mind-blowing truths of the gospel is that the work of Jesus makes it possible for a perfectly holy God to be in intimate union with an imperfect sinner's grace. Do you get it? This is what God, but you and I need to see our need of a Savior. And Christian, if you and I are going to appreciate it, we need to see how great a Savior we have. And so my question is rather obvious. Out of John 8, 21 to 29, will we trust and believe in him today? Will you? Will I? I want you to see not only the warning of this passage, but the important heed the offer of God's amazing grace. You see, this passage tells us if you turn your back on the creator of the universe, he's your only hope of a savior. But the truth is also that Jesus came and he lived and he died. And our passage says he was lifted up. And listen, he rose again, victorious and triumphant and with power. And it was all directed in mercy and grace and fueled by love. And if you'll just confess and believe. Listen, if you're here this morning, just give your struggles to Jesus. Give him your sin. Give him even your attempts at goodness. Stop trying to earn heaven or earn his love. Don't believe you're too bad. Don't overthink it or assume you're the one who must define it. Just come to God. Believe in Jesus. Trust the word of God and then rest for eternity. God loves you. And Christians, let me ask you three things. Are you and I willing to be truthful with others about Jesus? Will you be brave enough with your friends and your coworkers and your fellow students, your classmates, to tell them the truth about Jesus? All of the truth. Secondly, have we been transformed by Jesus enough to own the truth? And thirdly, are we loving and joyful enough to show and offer the true Jesus? We've got to be truth and love people, a truth and love church. Now, I want to make sure that we get this before I close. You see, I'm not talking about being a truth that sh- a church that, sh- that shoves truth down somebody's throat. I don't want us to be known as so-called Christians who are always looking for fights or to win arguments. I'm not looking for us to be a church who's always looking to be provocative because I want you to know the world will never listen to that. But the opposite is also true. I don't want us to be a truth that loves everything but doesn't love enough to tell anybody the truth because that's equally damning and deadly. You know, when we come to chapter 9 of John, which is my favorite passage, i got to be honest, even for me, I'm preaching to you, but I'm preaching to myself because I would gladly skip over John 8 so I could get to John 9. 
Because John chapter 9 is my favorite chapter of the Bible because it's the dude born blind. And it is hilarious. I can't wait to get there because it, it is such a collision of ironies and stuff. But ultimately, this guy says, look, what do you want to know about me? I once was blind, but now I see. Do you want to meet Jesus? But do you really see the combination of truth and love? He says, I once was blind. He acknowledges the truth. He owns his stuff. I was blind, but now I see. And so Jesus is mine. And I end this morning with this little testimony. Some of you ladies that study the Bible uh, might know this person. Uh, her name is uh, Jenny Allen. I read this this week, and she, this is a testimony she wrote about this passage. She says, usually when I see unhealthy patterns in my life and sin, I begin by asking this question to myself. What am I believing wrongly about God? So that, she says, began a two-year journey through the familiar stories of Jesus in the book of John. I needed to see how Jesus lived. I needed to see how he lived with the weighty calling, with suffering of friends, with joy and abundance. And sure enough, I went into John believing Jesus wanted something from me. And today that has shifted. He actually wants so much more for me. I quickly realized as I studied, she said, I don't understand Jesus' rhythms of grace. I do, however, very much understand the rhythms of the world. In fact, I realized the strong, loud rhythms of the world which infiltrated just about all of my understandings about God in this life. The rhythms of grace are built on two truths that everything in my flesh actually struggles to receive or believe. The first one is, I am not enough. I do not measure up. I desperately don't want that to be true. But that is our reality in a 21st century world. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. And number two, Jesus is enough and he measures up for me. And the truth is, I had to admit that I don't want that to be true because I like to be the hero of my own story. You see, it's vulnerable to be the one that needs to be rescued. I don't have to prove anything because Jesus proved everything. And here's the thing, she writes. People who believe that, they start living wildly free because they don't have anything to prove and they don't have anything to lose. There's this rest that comes over us because we don't have to measure up anymore, and yet we do measure up. It's so freeing. But the rhythms of the world have given us two strong lies that we have taken as truth. Either one, that we are enough in ourselves it looks like ego or pride or maybe even self-esteem. And she says all self-help books out there are feeding this, this idea that we can measure up, we can do better, and we can fix our problems. Or the other lie we believe that we aren't enough and there is no hope and it looks like insecurity or fear, maybe even defeat. And even as those who believe in Christ, I think many of us are so completely stuck in the rhythms of the world that the lie that the enemy has given us we just need to admit we need to be rescued. And with all my searching, only one person has the power to rescue us from these lives, from striving, from insecurity. And that person is, in my final conclusion, Jesus Christ. Oh, do you know him? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word Lord, I can only say it's my heart because you have touched me. Lord, this resonates with me because I have 
I have been lovingly shocked by you with the reality of my own sin, my own fears, my own insecurities, my own weaknesses. And Father, I have felt the warm blanket of your love. Father, we read this morning in our liturgy how David said in Psalm 40, you lifted me out of that miry clay and you set my feet upon a rock. I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would know the freedom, the wild freedom of simply knowing that Jesus is enough. Lord, I pray for any that are hurting or searching. I pray for any Christian that feels weak or inadequate or has been hurt or burdened by other people's failures, that they would know that you know exactly how they feel and you love them and you will comfort them and you will provide a way for them to walk through this. I pray that no one in here would believe Satan's lie that they can't be honest or that they can't be forgiven. I pray for our young people here this morning that they would know that knowing about Jesus is not good enough. they got to believe in him and that even though they're young, like that song we sang, My Jesus, I Love Thee, that our very youngest person in this room can have a live, living, vivid, and, and passionate, urgent faith with Jesus. I pray for our seniors here that they would be excited to live out the gospel in front of a watching set of eyes. Lord, the one thing you laid on my heart as I turned 47 is that the legacy of my life now is about showing my children and my grandchildren and the young people of this church that I will never grow weary in well-doing, that Jesus will be sweeter to me than ever before. And so, Lord, I just pray, whatever the need is in this room, would you cause us to look to you? In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,